You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I'd like to begin this morning by reading the text. Philippians chapter 1. We only have one verse in front of us today. This is a verse that rises high into the clouds of heaven. It is a verse that most of you have memorized, and in a way it summarizes the entire Christian life. It, it summarizes the whole of Christianity. It conveys the heartbeat and the battle cry for what we as Christians are all about. For many of you, this is your life verse, and it's no wonder that so many of you would gravitate towards this verse, that it would be there for you, that it would pull you in and suck you into its glory. This is a tremendous verse that we are going to look at today, because within a short economy of words, Paul declares his reason for living and his hope for dying. Our text is Philippians 1.21. This is Paul's statement of faith, where he writes, for to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. As you well know, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 space mission, where man walked on the moon for the first time, 50 years ago. I wasn't alive when that happened, back in 1969, but several of you were, and I'm sure you remember where you were. I'm sure you remember what you were doing. When you heard the news that mankind had done it, we had successfully traveled through space, we had landed on the surface of the moon, what an achievement. What an incredible achievement for mankind. However, you might not remember another significant space-related event that occurred only two years before that, in October of 1967. The Soviet Union launched the Venera 4 space probe towards Venus. Its mission was to land on the surface of that planet and transmit data back to Earth. Much to everyone's surprise and delight, the data showed that Venus was actually inhabitable for human life. That mankind could live on the surface of Venus. Those who had grown up like myself reading so much science fiction, I'm sure they were packing their bags. I'm sure they were getting ready to, to traverse space and land on those, those red and yellow fields of Venus. I know I would have. I would have been pumped. I would have been excited as a young man to hear that Venus can support life. However, unfortunately, we don't remember this astonish, uh, astonishing discovery, and no one is packing their bags today because the information they received was wrong. You see, the Venera 4 stopped transmitting data about 26 kilometers from the surface of the planet. Way up in the atmosphere, the Russian scientists had made two mistakes. First of all, they underestimated how long it would take for the probe to land. So the battery that they installed just didn't have enough juice to keep on going. But more importantly, their calculations concerning the radius of the planet were way off. You see, they were able to mathematically determine where the surface would be by taking the, the, the entirety of the planet and cutting it down, taking the radius, and then saying, okay, if we take that full number, we divide it by half, that should give us the surface. Well, if your measurement is wrong for the entire planet, 
then guess what happens? Your calculations for where the surface are going to be, they're going to be wrong too. So when the probe hit that number, they assumed that they had reached the surface when in fact they were still several miles away up in the atmosphere. Well, the same can be said for so many who think that they understand Christianity. And just flip on the History Channel and waste an entire afternoon watching these so-called Bible scholars completely miss the point. They think that they get it. They think they're there. They know the Bible. They've, they've arrived. They've landed on the surface. But they haven't really figured it out at all, have they? I mean, they think that they have it, but their data is wrong. And the, and, the, and the information that they keep transmitting to everybody else is wrong as well. When it comes to the truth, getting the facts right is so important. Bad data results in bad conclusions. Well, unfortunately, there are so many people in the world who think that they know what Christianity is all about, when in fact they are miles away from the heart and soul of biblical Christianity. Philippians 1.21 cuts through the confusion. And it succinctly clarifies what the Christian faith is all about. The late, great James Montgomery Boyce had this to say about our verse today. He writes, Philippians 1.21 is a text that cuts like a surgeon's scalpel to the very heart of Christianity. He goes on to ask, what is Christianity? The question is a puzzle to non-Christian historians, sociologists, psychologists, and others. It also puzzles the person on the street, the homemaker, the college student. He asked again, what is Christianity? The answer to that question is not unknown to the believing child of God. Christianity is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. All that is rightly associated with Christianity finds its center of gravity in him. In the same vein, John Stott writes, Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. As the name implies, Christianity is all about Christ. It means that you have to have Christ, and Christ must be your everything. If you have Christ, you have everything. If you do not have Christ, you have nothing. Charles Spurgeon once shouted, If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he is to be something, he must be everything. And if he is not to be everything, he is nothing to you. Powerful words. Christ is everything. Therefore, he must be everything to us. Thomas Brooks, a great 17th century Puritan, he, he said this. He said, Christ is to be sought and bought with any pains and at any price. We cannot buy this gold too dear. He is a jewel worth more than a thousand worlds. And as all know who have him, get him and get all. Miss him and miss all. This is why the Apostle Paul is in chains as he writes this letter. The Philippians have received word that Paul has been arrested as an insurrectionist against the empire and he's waiting for his final trial before Caesar. He has been bounced around in the legal system for years. He has been shipwrecked and finally placed under house arrest in Rome. He is chained to Caesar's elite soldiers, the best of the best that the empire has to offer. No one showed up at his first trial and his friends have all abandoned him. Other pastors are preaching the gospel and for that he rejoices. He is overjoyed to know that Christ is being proclaimed, Christ is being preached, and yet he knows that they are doing it out of spite. 
They're doing it to hurt him. They want to rub salt into the apostle's wounds because he's stuck at home. And as much as he wants to be out in the marketplace, as much as he wants to preach the gospel with power and precision, he's stuck. He's chained to a praetorian guard. So word of Paul's hardships have reached the Philippians and they are concerned for his welfare. After all, this is the man that brought the gospel to them. This is the man who brought the gospel to Europe. And now he sits chained to a guard in Rome with the very real potential and possibility of death hanging over his head. Will Caesar give him his freedom so he can continue to preach the gospel or with a snap of his finger, will Paul find his head removed from his body? And so Paul writes and he says, either way, I win. Either way, I win. In a very real sense, Paul can't lose because he has Christ, because he already has everything. If he lives, he will have even more opportunities to serve Christ, to love Christ, and to preach Christ. If he dies, he'll be with Christ, and he'll be able to see Christ and worship Christ face to face forever and ever. And so he writes, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This morning, we're simply going to divide this Christian motto into two logical headings. First, we will look at the Christian's passion the Christian's passion, followed by the Christian's prophet, the Christian's prophet. But first we see the Christian's passion. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, to live is Christ. Notice he doesn't start off talking about us or them or anyone else. He says, for to me, he makes this very personal from the very beginning. He says, this is my faith. This is my position, my religion, my stand. He's saying, you can do you over there. But for me, for myself, regardless of what anyone else does, it doesn't matter what others believe, it doesn't matter what the majority opinion might be or what the world approves of. For me, my all-encompassing passion in life is Christ. I might not be able to speak for you, but for me, Christ is everything. This is emphatic. Even for the Apostle Paul, he says, for to me to live is Christ. Interestingly enough, that little verb is, it doesn't exist here in the original Greek. Our translators have added that little word, that verb, so that this sentence would roll off the tongue more smoothly. But for Paul, as he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he literally says, for to me to live Christ To live Christ. It doesn't flow nearly as smoothly in the English language, but it packs a punch, doesn't it? For to me to live Christ, this means my devotion, my desires, my delights, all of me, they are all found in Christ. He is my life. Everything that I do, everything that I have, everything that I want and everything that I am, it is all in submission to the Lordship of Christ, to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Christian, I have to ask you the question. Is Christ your everything? Is he? And you say, whoa, wait a minute, Hans. That's a pretty personal question. Yes, it is. It's extremely personal. Is Christ everything? Is he all you've got? And is everything else in its proper place behind him? I mentioned earlier that this is Paul's statement of faith. Is it yours? Is it your statement of faith? 
Can you lock arms with the Apostle Paul and say, but for me to live Christ? I'm sure with a crowd like this, some would say, yes, definitely. Others would say, no way, Jose. And there are probably a few here who are shaking your heads and wondering, Hans, I have no idea what you're talking about. So let's go ahead and back up just a minute. And let's talk about basic Christianity. Let's talk about what Paul is referencing here. What does he mean when he says to live Christ? What is he talking about? Well, we know that Christ is the clear center and focus of our Christian faith. But what does that mean? What does it look like for a believer? What is the Christian life all about? What do we mean when we say to live Christ? Well, I want to give you three essential elements of true Christianity. Three essential elements. You take one of these elements away, and you're left with something less than a true, vibrant expression of the Christian life. So you need all three. Number one, the first element is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. This is trust in Christ. This is acknowledging that you can do nothing to save yourself. As much as you might wish that you can, as much as we all wish that we can, you cannot do anything to save yourself. It's coming to that point of recognition when you realize that you don't deserve heaven. In fact, if anything, God owes you hell. And you accept the fact that Christ has provided salvation for you by dying for you in your place. To have faith in Christ, you must have confidence in Christ, belief in Christ, and assurance in Christ. Christ must be the supreme Savior and Lord of your life. As you know, Paul is writing here to the Philippians in this letter. It would arrive at the church there in Philippi. And we're not sure exactly where it would arrive. Most likely, they were still meeting in Lydia's home. Either way, the Philippian jailer and his family, they would be there. Ten years later, listening to this letter as it's being read out loud in the hearing of the assembly. And, and, and I have to imagine that as he sits there and as he hears these words being read out loud and as he thinks back to his time with Paul, that all of the events surrounding his conversion had to be swirling around in his head. How in Acts 16, the wall shook and they released the prisoners and, and how he was about to commit suicide when Paul cried out in a loud voice, don't do it, we're all here. And trembling, the jailer asked that all-important question. He said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And what was Paul's response? He simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus. After that, they went back to the jailer's house and he explained the rest to him. But it all begins with faith in Christ. These words had to ring in his ears as he heard this letter read out loud. And they should ring in our ears as well. Salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. We don't put our faith in anything else. We don't put our faith in relics. We don't put our faith in baptism. We don't put our faith in our heritage. We don't put our faith in our past. We don't put our faith in our performance. We put our faith in Christ. We put our faith in his sacrifice on the cross for us. We put our faith in his person, in his works, in what he has accomplished, and what he has done. True Christianity accepts that we cannot save ourselves, and nothing else can save us except that perfect sacrifice of Christ himself in our place on the cross. That's number one. True Christianity is first and foremost faith in Christ. Number two, true Christianity is fellowship with Christ. 
fellowship with Christ. And this is so important because too many folks embrace faith in Christ at a distance. They might believe in a crucified Savior. 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world, separated by time and distance. But they don't walk with him now. They have the facts, but they don't have the fellowship. In 1 John 1, 3, John writes, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he says, we've we've given you doctrine. We've given you facts in order for you to have fellowship with us as we have fellowship with the Father and with the Son so that we can all be in fellowship together. But notice what the next verse says. He then goes on to say, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Note the pattern. Doctrine leads to fellowship and fellowship leads to joy. So much of the time our joy is lacking. Because our fellowship is lacking. We know the truth of salvation and we have faith in Christ, but we don't have the joy that comes along with fellowship with Christ. To live Christ means to live both in Christ and with Christ. That is why Paul declares in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. True Christianity is union with Christ. It is a life that is joined together with him. True Christians say, I am a dead man. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This life is no longer mine. For to me to live is Christ. He lives within me. He calls the shots. He gave himself for me, and now I live by faith in him. Faith and fellowship go hand in hand. But there's a third essential element of true Christianity that is so often ignored. And Jesus testified to this over and over and over again, and yet We often fail to catch it. True Christianity is faith in Christ, fellowship with Christ, but it is also following after Christ. Following after Christ. James Montgomery Boyce also writes, and I love this. I I hate to quote somebody twice in one sermon, but this is so good. It's worth it. He says, the Christ in whom we believe is a Christ on the move. And the fellowship we enjoy is not so much the fellowship of the living room as it is the fellowship of the soldier marching under the eye of his commander. Isn't that good? The call of Christ in its simplest form has always been two words. Follow me. Follow me. Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Listen, Jesus didn't say, try me out for a while and see how you like it. He didn't say that if you aren't fully satisfied, I come with a money-back guarantee. He doesn't say that, that you can try me out for a while and you can go back to your old life if you so choose. He doesn't even ask politely. He just simply says, do it. Do it. He says, follow your dreams. No, that's not what he says. He says, deny yourself. He says, live your best life now. No, he says die. 
In fact, he says, die daily. Keep on dying. You don't pick up your cross with your name on it for fun. No, Jesus says, deny yourself and die to yourself daily. Those are the words of our Savior. That is his command to us today. And then he follows that up by saying, follow me. And that summarizes the whole thing. To follow Christ is to abandon everything else. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, whoever loves his mother and father more than me. Sometimes I wonder, especially when I read passages like this, how many of us would be offended to hear Jesus speak today? How many of us would say, "Uh uh-uh, this guy's a heretic? And yet, what does the perfect son of God say here? He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Friends, the call to follow Christ is not a call to hold on to this temporary life that you already have. It's a call to lose everything. It's to lose everything that you have, everything that you own, everything that you love already in your heart for the sake of gaining more than you could ever possibly imagine. It is no to me and yes to you, Lord. It's take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Anything less is less than Christian. True Christianity is faith in Christ, fellowship with Christ, and it's following after Christ. In other words, to live Christ. This was Paul's passion. This was his reason for living, his greatest love and his greatest goal. And I have to ask again, is it yours? Is it yours? Can you honestly say, come what may, I will deny myself, I will die to myself daily, and I will follow my Savior? Is your faith in Christ, like the Philippian jailer, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he is who he claims to be, that he is the perfect son of God and the perfect son of man? That yes, he was born of a virgin, as wild and as impossible as that may sound, we know that it is not impossible for God. That he grew up on earth like us and he never sinned, not once. That he lived a perfect life so he could go to the cross and pay that price for our sin. Where he stood in the place of sinners, a holy God punished him to pardon us. He died your death with your shame for your sins so that his righteousness could be credited to your account. And all you have to do is believe in your heart. And confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Christ is alive and he is everything. If that is true for you, then it doesn't matter what happens next. It really doesn't. Like Job, you can lose everything and you can still fall on your face and worship God and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Regardless of what happens. Or like Paul, you can face death square in the eye and you can know in your heart that for you to live is to, is to be with Christ, to live is to serve Christ, to follow him, and to die is gain. To die is to gain so much more. When it comes to the life of a Christian, Christ is the alpha and the omega. He's the first and the last. He's the opening and the closing, the first and final word and everything in between. J.C. Ryle once said that no one has ever thought too much of Christ. It's true. 
That's something we never have to confess or repent of. Lord, I thought too much of you today. We don't ever have to worry about that because we'll never get there. We could never thank him enough. We could never honor him enough, worship him enough, praise him enough, obey him enough, adore him enough, respect him enough, admire him enough, submit to him enough. He deserves all that we have and all that we are and so much more because he is who he says he is. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the God man who gave his life for you so that you could have new life through him. This is the Christian's passion. This is, this is the gas in Paul's tank. This is the fire in his bones, the wind in his sails. Paul lived for Christ, and those who follow in his shadow must also live for Christ. When Paul preached, he didn't, he didn't look for professions. He wanted passion. He wanted to change life. He wanted people who were in this thing for real, in it to win it. He didn't want lazy Christians because that's not what God has asked for. That is not what he has come to redeem. That is not the whole point and purpose of this Christian life, friends. That is why easy believism is so damning and so scary because that is not what Christ died for. That is not what he preached. That is not what he called and that is not what he calls us to either. He has called us to a changed life, a changed person, where he is front and center, and he is everything, everything. That is the Christian's passion, and that's what we see here with Paul when he says, for to me to live Christ. Secondly, for the second half here, we see the Christian's prophet, the Christian's prophet. He says, and to die is gain. Once again, the verb is, it doesn't appear here in the original language. In staccato fashion, Paul emphasizes his point by saying, for to me to live Christ and to die, gain. To die, gain. You say, now wait a minute, Hans. You said a while ago that death was staring Paul in the face. Paul had the very real threat of death hanging over him as he wrote this. Therefore, doesn't it stand to reason that the last half of this verse might be speaking to his present situation and, and just that only? That maybe he's not, he's not providing some axiomatic, blanketed statement for the rest of Christianity or for the rest of us. This might not be the general disposition that, that we all must have as believers. This is just true for Paul because he's going through a hard time. I mean, we might be tempted to think that way. And it says a lot about our view of death if we do. The answer is no, because the Christian's view of death should be different than that of the world's. Sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that death is, is only a blessed relief for those who are suffering. We think that maybe, uh, maybe for those who are going through hard times or physical ailments or being persecuted for their faith, maybe it would be a mercy or a blessing for them to enter into the presence of the Lord. But for the rest of us, for those who are healthy, for those who it appears as though we may have several years ahead of us, that's a different story. That's a terrible way of looking at death. That's not a biblical way of looking at death. And that's certainly not what's going on here in this text. Biblically, a Christian's death is never pictured as gain over the worst of life. Instead, it is always shown as an improvement over the best. Just look at the next two verses, and we'll look at these verses in more detail next week. 
But Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. He says, I would rather be with Christ. I would rather depart this life and be with Christ. Not because that's good, but because it's better. And not just because it's better, but because it's far better. It is far better to depart and be with Christ. No unbeliever can say that. Francis Bacon said, Men fear death as children fear the dark. Samuel Johnson had this to add when a friend of his died. He said, At the sight of this final conflict, I felt a sensation never known to me before. A confusion of passions, an awful stillness of sorrow, a gloomy terror without a name. It's awful. And for the Christian, we should not be like that. We should not face death like that. Because the Bible tells us that we are free from those terrors. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 are incredibly encouraging. They say, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So just like we are made of flesh and blood, Christ took on flesh and blood and he became just like us. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The unbeliever fears death because he is enslaved to it. He knows that this fleeting wisp of a life is all that he has. It is the only heaven that he will ever know, and that is the heaven that he makes for himself here on earth. He knows that this is all he has, and there is nothing good for him waiting on the other side. On the flip side, concerning the Christian, Thomas Watson writes, whatever affliction or trouble a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he shall ever have. So whatever you face today, whatever you face here in this life as a Christian, that is all the hell you are ever going to face. That is as bad as it gets for you. It's only going to get better. Christ has removed the sting of death. And unlike the unbeliever, the Christian's death is not only something not to fear, it is actually something to, in a sense, look forward to. Paul says it is better, by far, by far, because the Christian's death comes with benefits. Some of you are looking at me like, okay, Hans, what are they? Well, there are several. So many that we really can't cover them all today. But I do want to give you just a few. And I hope that it encourages your heart this morning as we just barely scratch the surface on some of the things that we have to look forward to. Some of the death benefits that accompany a Christian's passing. So first of all, no sin. No sin. I can't even imagine a world without sin. Can you? I mean, think about that. No sin. I have a hard time picturing it, let alone describing any of it. So I have here a quote from Dr. Steve Lawson. He does his best to picture it for us in his book, Heaven Help Us. I love what he writes here. He says that once we get there, there will be nothing unclean around us. We will live in a world spiritually clean from the pollution of all sin. No abortion clinics, no divorce courts, no brothels, 
No bankruptcy courts, no psychiatric wards, and no treatment centers. No pornography, no dial-a-porn, no teen suicide, no drive-by shootings, no racial tensions, and no prejudice. There will be no misunderstandings, no injustice, no depression, no hurtful words, no gossip, no hurt feelings, no worry, no emptiness, and no child abuse. There will be no wars, no financial worries, no heart monitors, no rust, no perplexing questions, no false teachers, and no financial shortages, no cancer, no hurricanes, no bad habits, no decay, and no locks. We will never need to confess sin, never need to apologize again, never need to straighten out a strained relationship, never have to resist Satan again, never have to resist temptation, never. I can't wait to get there. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty good. Better than pretty good. That sounds better by far. Better by far. I can't wait to leave this wicked world behind and enter into this new earth one in which righteousness dwells. Another benefit is full understanding. Full understanding. For now we see things imperfectly, but in that day we will know fully as God knows us fully. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The error that currently clouds our thinking will be lifted. All of the pollution of sin, all of our presuppositions that are false, they will all be wiped away. We will have a full understanding. We will understand the ways of God. We will understand his reasoning and his expectation for us. What a delight that will be. Because right now, in our limited perspective, in our limiting understanding, and, and, with, and with sin so full in us, and so full in others, how often... Do we scratch our heads? And how often do we wonder to ourselves, why, God, why? Why is this happening? Well, then we will know. Then we will see it. And we'll praise God for it. Right now, it's hard. But there it will be easy. Because we'll have full understanding. Another benefit is uninterrupted joy. Uninterrupted joy. There are times when joy fills our hearts to overflowing. Times like your wedding day, or the birth of a child. But those times are always interrupted by the daily pressures and troubles of life. After the wedding, there's marriage. And eventually, eventually that precious baby becomes a teenager. We get glimpses of euphoric joy here on earth, but it never lasts. And it won't last until we're there. We have interruptions now. But there will be no interruptions once we're in the presence of our Savior. We will never know sorrow again. I love how Psalm 1611 puts it. David writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Another benefit that death brings for the believer is deep fellowship. Deep fellowship. And I love this one so much. To think that we're going to leave this mortal coil and be reunited with loved ones who have gone before us. Every once in a while I get asked that question. Not too long ago, my uh, last surviving grandparent passed away. And I was asked that question 
Do you think that we'll see her again? Do you think that we'll actually recognize each other and, and spend time with each other again? And the answer is yes, most certainly. And that's not speculative. That's not speculation on my part. The Bible says so. And not just them, but all the saints who have beaten us there. Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12, 22. This is a fantastic verse. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we're talking about heaven here. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. So the writer of Hebrews says, once we get there, we're going to find ourselves face to face with millions of angels. And not only that, but we're going to be together with them in a festal gathering. How awesome is that? I mean, are you looking forward to having a one-on-one conversation with an angel? It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's exciting, but that's not all. What else does the writer say? In verse 23, he adds, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the saints of the righteous made perfect. That's us. That's everyone who has gone before us. Beloved, you are not only going to get the chance to fellowship with loved ones, you are gonna see Moses, Abraham, Job, Joseph, David, Samson, Jacob, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we all know that Paul's going to be there. You might have heard this rhyme before, so I apologize if it's not new to you. I found it amusing. To dwell up above with those that we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live down below with those that we know, well, that's another story. Friends, I love the fellowship that we have here at this church. I love the fellowship that we have together as the body of Christ, but we have something to look forward to that is far better, far better than the fellowship that we have even here and now. Another Christian death benefit is going home, going home. To die as a believer in Jesus Christ is to immediately go into the presence of Jesus Christ. And that is so much better than serving him at a distance. 2 Corinthians 5.8 Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What an expression. To be home with the Lord. To actually be home. There's something about being home that brings comfort and peace to the believer, especially in the face of death. While Stephen was being martyred for his faith in Christ, he looked up to the heavens and he saw Christ not sitting Like we're told in Hebrews, he's not sitting next to the Father, but he's standing and he's waiting there to welcome him home. I can't wait to go home. And none of us, none of us should be afraid to go home. None of us should want anything here more than to go home. Because this is not our home. This is not what we live for. This is where we live temporarily, as sojourners, as pilgrims. But we know, as we will see later on, even in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. We have been registered. There is no voting. I hate to tell you that. It's not a democracy in heaven. But we are heavenly citizens. And we long for that day when we will finally go home. We'll finally, at least for today, and there are so many more, but these are just a few that I want to leave you with. Another benefit for the believer in death is glorious transformation. Glorious transformation. 
Let's peek ahead just a little bit to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. And look at what Paul will say in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things to himself. John tells us that when we see him, we will be like him. Think about that. We are going to be gloriously transformed. Our sin nature will be eradicated. Our desires will be decontaminated. Our physical shells will be upgraded. You see, the Christian's death isn't a tragedy, it's a triumph. To go from the grave to glory is the greatest gain. It is the greatest profit for the child of God. But, and here's the but, if the first part of this verse isn't true for you, then to die is loss. There is only one way for death to benefit you. You must live Christ. You must live for Christ. Here and now, in this world, in this life, if you replace the first part of this verse with anything other than Christ, if you say, for to me to live is my job, or for me to live is my spouse, or for me to live is my children, or for me to live is my church, then for you, my friend, death is loss. It is not gain. And let's just take it one step further. Perhaps you are a Christian, but Christ is low on your list of priorities. Perhaps you would say, for to me, to live as Christ plus my job, or to live as Christ plus the church, or plus my family, then friend, it is time for you to prioritize your life. Because that is not what Jesus preached, and that is not the call that he has given. That is not what it means to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. He doesn't want us to actually hate our mothers and fathers. He doesn't want us to actually hate our children. That is not what Jesus is saying in Matthew. But what he is saying is you have to love me more than them. You have to put me at a higher priority in your life than the greatest loves of your life. That is what he is saying. And even if you love Christ a little bit, even if you've made a profession of faith, even if you've fallen into that easy believism trap and he isn't first and foremost in your heart and in your mind and in your life, then friend, now is the time to prioritize. Because Jesus said, you have to forsake everything. And he said that if you don't do this, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of him. You're not worthy of your savior. Christ doesn't play second fiddle. He isn't Lord over part of your life. He doesn't pop in and out. And he's not okay with stony hearts and divided affections. He's not. Let me remind you of the quote that I provided earlier from Charles Spurgeon. He said, if Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of man. If he is to be something, he must be everything. And if he is to not be everything, then that means he is nothing to you. Christian, is Christ your passion? Again, it's a personal question, but it is an important one. It's one that we must all answer. It's one we must all wrestle with. 
Do you love him? Do you love Christ above everything else, above everyone else? Does he have first place in your heart? Does he have first place in your time? First place in your love? First place in your pleasures? First place in your work, in your play, in your art, in your entertainment, in your worship, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your church? Can you honestly say, for to me to live Christ? Can you say that with certainty and with confidence this morning? And because that is true, to die, gain. You don't have to fear death. All of those benefits that we looked at, you can look forward to receiving those benefits. It's better than social security, I promise. You can look forward to that. And it's a guaranteed thing. I don't know if social security is gonna be there when I, when I get older. But it's a guaranteed thing. You have benefits waiting for you, believer. But Christ must be your everything because that is true Christianity. Anything else is up in the atmosphere somewhere. Anything else is far from the heart and soul of what Christ is and what Christ preached and what he demands and calls us to do. You have to have faith in him You have to have fellowship with him and you have to follow after him. That's what he said. We must do it today. Well, on a cold February morning in 1555, John Hooper, an English Puritan, was burned at the stake. He was the first of many to be martyred under the savage rule of Bloody Mary. When he was condemned, Sir Anthony Kingston pleaded with him to recant. He shouted, Life is sweet and death is bitter, as if that was going to change John Hooper's mind. To which John replied, true it is that death is bitter and life is sweet, but alas, consider that the death to come is more bitter and the life to come is more sweet. Therefore, for the desire and love that I have for the one and the terror and fear of the other, I do not so much regard this death, nor esteem this life, but I have settled myself through the torments and extremities of the fire now prepared for me, rather than to deny the truth of his word. What a response. John Hooper got it. John Hooper knew that to live was Christ, and to die was gain. He had an eternal perspective, one that looked beyond the terror and the fear of a bitter death here and now, one that looked beyond the torments and extremities of being burned alive to an even sweeter life, one that is prepared for those whose lives are centered and grounded in Christ, who are hidden with Christ. Friend, I don't know about you, but for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. What a profound truth. What a profound statement of faith. I hope it's yours today. I hope it's yours today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we love you. Lord, we know that you have called us to deny ourselves, to die to ourselves daily, and to pick up our crosses and follow you. Lord, we know that this is that free gift that cost everything. We know that discipleship comes at a cost. We know that you have called men and women unto yourself, that like you, we have been called to suffer now and to glory later. God, I pray that we would get that. 
I pray that our lives here and now would be Christ, that they would center around Christ, that they would be grounded in Christ, that they would grow. Lord, I pray that you would fill our vision. I pray that you would guide us and direct us. Lord, that you would influence every aspect of our lives. Lord, we know that to live is Christ, but also to die is gain. The Christian's profit and the Christian's passion Lord, you have brought these two things together to create a beautiful union and a beautiful plan for your people. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful. I pray that our lives would be changed in light of this truth. I pray that we wouldn't lose our focus, that we wouldn't look to the left or to the right, but that we would keep our eyes on you. Lord, that we would grow in you. Lord, that we would proclaim you, that we would share you with others. Lord, I pray that this truth would not only change us, but that it would change others through us. Because the work isn't done, Lord. The time has not come yet, but we know it is coming. When you will judge, when you will come in your glory and in the glory of your Father with holy angels to judge mankind. Lord, when that day comes, I pray that everyone in this room would be on the right side of your sword. God, we love you. We honor you. We worship you. We are not offended by your truths. We embrace them. We follow them. Lord, give us that precious fellowship with you. As doctrine leads to fellowship, Lord, I pray that that fellowship would lead to joy so that whatever we face in this life, like Job, we can fall on our faces and say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Give us that joy. Give us that hope. And Lord, we long for the day when we will be gloriously transformed, when we will be welcomed home, when we will be with you forever and ever. We love you so much. We long for that day. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in your name. Amen.